IT projects almost never, 99.99% of the time, don't fail because of technology. Mm. They fail because of people problems. Mm. And that is exactly the parallel we have today with the environment situation. We've got world-class, we have this amazing solar technology, we have wind, we've got the pumped hydro, and all these other technologies that we can solve our problem, electric cars, right? But why are we not using them as much as we could? Why are we so slow? Why do we have a government in Australia that just thinks it's a green left socialist conspiracy? Hello friends. It's great to be back with you for another conversation over a cuppa. Today our guest is Rod Taylor. Rod is a Canberra-based science writer whose recent book, 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet, focuses on what 10 environmental heroes are doing to confront the state of our planet, and in particular, climate change. Rod broadcasts a weekly science show on community radio 2XXFM called Fuzzy Logic, and he's also been featured on ABC and BBC radio shows. His Ask Fuzzy column in the Canberra Times newspaper has him covering a wide variety of topics, from maggots to artificial intelligence, all with his customary enthusiasm and wry humour ensuring that he connects with readers. I met Rod a few years ago at a Rivers of Carbon field day we were running in Bredalbin, a small community in New South Wales. It was a grey and rainy day, and after some presentations in the town hall about satellite tracking birds, local indigenous ecological knowledge, and practical ways to care for creeks and streams, we headed out into the rain to look at the beautiful Bredalbin wetlands. Rod got very wet as he was riding his motorbike that day, but he must have still enjoyed the experience as he followed up with me more to talk about the work we're doing to help people adapt to climate change and to discuss the book he hoped to write. Well, that book is now written, and in this conversation we'll be asking Rod to talk about what it was like to narrate the experiences of 10 people who he says provide him with hope that we can rise to the challenges of our changing climate. Well, welcome, Rod. It's great to be talking with you today. Oh, it's such an exciting moment for me, Shoanne. <laughs> it's such a blast. <laughs> That's great. Everything to do with well, meeting you and writing the book is such a blast. That's wonderful. That's so good. So let's talk about this book, 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet. What inspired you to write it? It's kind of the conjunction of a few things all happening at once. And I've long had an environmental awareness. And late in 2016, I was watching what's happening to the world and seeing all the signs of, of a planet in distress. Mm. I'm looking at the land and, I, and I'm feeling increasingly concerned about what's happening. Now, I, I have two careers, one in IT and one in media. And one pays very well. <laughs> and I wasn't getting a lot of satisfaction from doing it. The other doesn't pay at all, but it is extremely satisfying. But I felt this urgent desire to do something. I didn't want to get to the end of my life thinking I could have this or I could have that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the old man in the nursing home saying I did this and I did do that. And... I kind of have this vague notion that I wanted to explore Australia and Australians and see how Australians or people are responding to this situation. What are they doing about it? 
So it, it's really interesting because I know that, um, you know, you do the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. So you're very good on the science and yet you chose to focus on people. How did that happen? What, how did that sort of spark get ignited in you? I've, I have a passion for both. I find people are endlessly fascinating. And even when I do the science stuff, it's often the, why the people do the science, what sparks them to do the science? How do they come up with these fantastic ideas? And so I love the really nerdy stuff. So <laughs> I've just written a column for the paper about uh, mosquito bites, why are they itchy? And then I got all these interesting things about how the mosquito proboscis works and it's got this little saw that cuts into your skin. But it's also the effect on people, and, and mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just, it just sparks me on both fronts. So given that there are lots of people in Australia, why these 10 people? How did you come to find these 10 people that are featured in the book? Because it's, you know, it's such a privilege to be chosen as one of the 10, as I've been, so I'm just interested to know, how did you come to this group of 10? Because we're all incredibly different. Yeah, it's a, a slightly random process. Oh, great! So it's a, it's random. <laughs> but, but well, not only, well, there was a random element to it. Yeah. But there fine. are a lot of people I might have included in the book, but didn't. But I guess there's two parts to this. One was the mechanics of how I found the people, and you will relate to this, Shuan, with the River Restoration Centre. Mm -hmm. It's about the network, and so. I, I knew I wanted to write about people and how I was going to find them was my next question. Okay. So I, I know a lot of science people and I saw there was a community energy congress coming up in Melbourne in February 2017, right? So I went down to that and I'm not really good with, uh, I'm actually an introvert, sure. which might seem a bit weird, but I am introvert. And I went to this event and I didn't know what to expect. And I had some business cards printed and I just started chatting to people and they said, oh, wow, you're writing this book. You should totally talk to this person and this person, you should talk to this person. And then I did this speed dating thing, right? <laughs> yep. and, and I met a couple of people. Uh, Heather Smith was one and she runs the, uh, the community energy organization, can't remember the name of it. Yep. And then, she, and I got chatting to her and I got really connected with Heather. Mm. And she said, oh, there's these people you can talk to. Mm -hmm. And she introduced me to the crew in South Australia. So Leonard Cohen, yep. Susan Jeans, and uh, Monica Oliphant. Yep. And so f through her, I met. And then other people I met was uh, uh, Charlie Prell. Yep. Someone said you should meet Charlie. So, uh, and then next we're having a cup of coffee and all that kind of stuff. So that's the power of the network, which, as I say, you really understand already. Mm. But the other thing is I needed to write a book that someone wants to read. I don't want to write something that appeals to the hardcore environment nerds. I wanted to write people stories, character stories. They, they are essentially character studies. And so the element of narrative is really important. Mm. And so you've got to give for a good story you've got to give the person a problem to solve and you think the three parts of a narrative right where are we now uh, how do we get here where do we go next mm. and so when I interviewed you Shuan I was pressing you all the time for what was it like who was there and you, then you told me a wonderful story 
about the sugarcane farm up in Queensland. Yes, it is a good one. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. So I guess people had good stories. That was that was crucial, and the diversity of stories as well. So not just uh, science stories, but but say so you you brought in the theme of the land and the environment and Charlie Prell, the, the sheep farming mm. and wind energy and so on. So, so for listeners, the, the infamous story that I told Rod was when I just started out working at Land and Water Australia and I was with um, Phil Price, who uh, was CEO of Land and Water Australia at the time. And we were up on a sugar farm um, and we were meeting a family, uh, the, the Waters family. And Tom Waters was held up as in the Innisfail region as an environmental leader. And he took us down to his riparian zone and sugarcane growers spend a lot of time basically growing grass and they do a lot of mowing and this was the neatest riparian strip I had ever ever seen and he was so proud there are all these hardwood trees um, with you know at least two or three meters in between mown very neatly it was like a it was like you know a, a landscaping um, exercise so I had a choice I could have said to him at that point this is all wrong or I could just try and build the relationship of trust a little bit further, which is what we ended up doing. And we left behind a few things and we were catching up with them again the next day. So we left behind a, a piece on filter strips and how grass can, can catch soil. So the next day I was in the ute with Tom and he was obviously feeling quite comfortable because he asked me about where I had got my teeth from and what a lovely smile. And... <laughs> I was thinking to myself, okay, this is a bit, this is random, as, as Rod said earlier. But, you know, as I would say, well, look, you know, I, I assume that they came from my family. And, yes, I'm really pleased to have nice teeth. And then he went straight on to talk about, oh, those filter strip things that you left me, I'm cutting my grass too short, aren't I? And I said, yes, you are. You actually need to make it a bit messier. And he goes, oh, okay, well, well I can do that. So so that is the infamous story. And, and really, it... it it links directly to what Rod's done with each of these chapters in that you have the narrative and you sort of get an insight into the person and to the, that, their that's journey. That's a great story, mm. Joanne, and I love it because when, when somebody reads that story, they are vicariously living your experience and people don't change their opinions because of facts. We don't act because of information. We act because of emotion, or I call it maybe glibly emotion. It's motivation that causes us to, to do something. And if I have one dream for the book, it is that a person somewhere will read those stories and they go, you know what, I could do that too. Mm, mm. Um, and, I, and I know when we look through the book, you've got you know farmers and you've got scientists and you've got social media people and then you've got people like me and and charlie doing sort of more landscape thing what were some of the the features that these people shared if you like could you identify some some themes or some characteristics about them that sort of came through because they were vastly different in background and an outlook and yet there must have been was there something that there's connected definitely them? Some, some common themes and I didn't yeah. want to get to the end of the book and just have the bunch of stories yeah. and so at the end of it I pieced together my observations along the lines that you're talking about mm. uh, there are a few aspects to it and I think the key one is motivation mm. uh, and, and there's a story I use in the book that uh, uh, 
Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a plan. <laughs> he said, I have a dream. Yes. And, and that's, that imparts a sense of motivation. And for each of us, we are driven to do something because of that motivation. And it's really hard to know how people get that motivation. Mm. But then it taps into the sense of being not powerless. Because a lot of people I know, they, they, I, I glibly put people into the categories of passengers and pilots. So the, the passengers goes mumble, grumble. You can tell a passenger because they complain. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> they, they, they feel powerless. They can't do anything, so they complain. And a complaint is a good example of someone who doesn't have any mm. sense that they can control things. But the people in the book, each of them in their own way feel some sense of power. And I don't mean power in the, mm. in the, <laughs> in the grand dictatorial sense no. of the word. <laughs> but it, it could be very... In fact, it is, in each case, very special to each person. And the way that is, is expressed depends on the character and their motivation. So I have a, a set of skills and interests and things that have led me to doing science, media, writing a book and so on. But not everybody's going to write a book. Not everybody's going to be the leader of a world-class organisation. So you might say, well, what can I do? Because I'm just a little old me. Mm -hmm. But well, if you find that thing that, that, that sparks your own character, your own circumstance, and it could be something like, I don't know, maybe recycling or just talking to your friends, it could be a really small thing. And not everybody's the, the great glowing champion. Uh, and on that then, what were some of the examples from the people that you interviewed that that stood out for you because it I mean I mean a few of them were small some of them were just start just I say doing recycling or just trying to do something different what are some of the ways that they got started on their journeys one of the one of the interesting stories that I heard was from Monica Oliphant and you recognize the name of course Oliphant being famous in world science she was standing in the kitchen listening to the radio and she heard McFarlane Burnett say, we wouldn't be in the Middle East in the, in the 1970s. Uh, we wouldn't be going to war over solar energy. Mm -hmm. And she thought, well, that's, that's amazing. I can mm -hmm. do something too. And uh, yes. Leonard Cohen was having a conversation with oh. uh, Gail Rudwick and, and she talked to him about the environment and he went, all these lights came on. And for both of them, they thought, well, what can I do? And Monica already had a strong science bent. Mm. And her husband was a, a science a physicist as well. So she well, renewable energy. And at that time, it was like the, the plaything in, it was seen as the plaything of hobbyists and, yeah. and, and labs. And the only solar panel that you could get was one that went on a satellite out into space, cost thousands of dollars and produced almost no power. So she found ways to promote renewable energy, even though it was such an early, mm. an early, early thing. And she went to the Flinders Ranges, worked with the Aboriginal people there to find a good place to put some solar panels on the roof. She worked on gas efficiency. Uh, in fact, uh, she was anti-gas, she mm. said, but uh, and, and they were rolling out gas pipelines to all new developments. Uh, <laughs> Leonard said, 
uh, I, I, I could see that planting trees is going to make a big difference. Mm. And, and in the story I tell of my manifera, you've seen it just mm. now. Yeah, I have. Yeah, at the front. Yep, yep. It's a beautiful, beautiful tree, yep. right? And that captures 2.4 tonnes of carbon. Mm. Yep, yep. And it, so it's, it's actually, it seems to me then that for these people as well, they're able to, as the rain is coming down outside, which is lovely, you can, you can hear that in the, in the background, listeners, um, that they, they're able to relate what they're doing to real life, to, to you actually having some agency. And I think that's one of the big things with, the, with, with uh, adapting to this changing climate is that a lot of people don't feel they've got any agency. The problem is just too big. The, the problems are enormous and, and Hugh Mackay has made this really interesting observation and he says in the face of global problems we're just individuals mm. spinning around helpless little twigs being mm. dragged down the drains uh, in, in the rainstorm mm. and uh, so what do we do well we we retreat to things we can control Yep. And I think that's a really key element. Mm. Now, if you don't have the vision, it could be just blitzing your backyard or, or be being a master chef, right? Yeah. And which is great, and, and, and we all need to do that kind of stuff, but it doesn't help the big picture. Mm. Mm. So a friend sent me an email recently and he said, oh, oh things are going pretty bad over here. He's in West Australia. Yep. They're in lockdown and he said, I'm going to focus on the things I can control. Yep, yep. And if you can direct that sense of control to something that helps, then, yeah, mm. do it. So one of the things that is interesting about the, the people in the book is that there seems to be a bit of a theme relating to anxiety or depression or, you know, some kind of mental health, um, not problem, but, you know... It, episodes or something that that actually seems in a way to contribute to motivating them i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that yeah it's look i i'm fortunate to have uh, to have a fairly robust makeup mm. and that's just nature it's not that i'm clever or anything like that it's just luck but I, I don't know if it's anxiety, but I, I look at the state of the world and I see things around my suburb here. So less than a kilometre away, Shuan, there's a row of casuarina she-oak trees, right? And those trees have been there for 40 years or more, right? They're beautiful, beautiful things. They're about to be bulldozed. They're about to be cut down to put in to duplicate the the road through there, mm. and I look at the Belconnen Town Centre, which is very close, and I see these big, ugly apartment blocks going in, and so everywhere around me are the signs of of, of a civilization of a planet in distress, mm. and I, I find that really really disturbing. Mm. Mm. How do I how do I deal with that? Don't get depressed, get active. Yeah. It's the only, well, it's my one of my strategies for, for dealing with it. And I think each of the people in the book use the things that they can do as an outlet. It's a sense of being in control. Mm. It's active. It's what do they call it? A positive psychology, mm. if, if you like. That's the strong part of it. Uh, another part of it is 
selective denialism, <laughs> to, to put a polite, but probably an accurate term actually on it. So in the newspaper, I see something, oh, a few days ago, there was an item, the world has lost more ice in the past year or two than has at any time in recorded history. And that just makes me feel really sick. Mm. I feel terrible. I look at that. But I didn't read the story. Mm. I have to filter it because yeah. I know it's happening. Yeah. Can I do something about it? No, no, I can't. And as Marcus said, I have to focus on things I can control. Mm. Mm. But being active, I think, is really important for me. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, as someone who does suffer from anxiety, um, you know, I, I know now that the parts of the brain for um, anxiety and decision making are interlinked. So the more anxious you get, the less able to make a decision you are. And so as anxiety goes up, your ability to actually think clearly goes along with it. So certainly for me, I have found that the work I do grounds me and soothes me um, because it is something that I can feel not necessarily have control over, but I know I can do that bit of my life well. You could be active. Yeah, and I'm doing something. Joanne, yeah. I, I found some research, and, and Paul mice suffer in the, in the name of research often, but they got mice who were depressed, or they tried to, 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 to tell whether a, a mouse was depressed, and they hang it by its tail, like just pick it up by its tail. And a depressed mouse would hang and not struggle mm. but a, a vigorous active mouse that um, and they're inferring whether it was depressed mm. or not it would try and there is research about people that shows that uh, a person who is physically stronger and more able but depressed is less likely to survive a situation than a person who is weaker but hasn't given up mm. And that sense of not giving up mm. is is the the key. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think I think so. And and certainly a theme running through the the podcast for this year is that theme of hope. Um, and I'm I'm just wondering if you can reflect on the people in the book in terms of how they share that hope with others. Do they demonstrate leadership in sharing hope, or is it something that just happens because of what they're doing that they sort of just I don't know elicit hope in others because they others see them doing what they're doing well well shawan you work with the river restoration <laughs> center your work is is people oriented you're about getting people enthused and able to do something about restoring river and water courses on their on their land I'm thinking of Inez Harkashuk, mm -hmm. and of all things, she is building a computer game to teach kids about how climate works. Mm. And it gives the, the, the children, and this is it's targeted to kids probably in the age of 10 or 11 to 14, mm -hmm. before they've got strong political views about anything. They're just kind of understanding the world. And with that knowledge, they they can get a sense of what climate is in the world, and, and perhaps what they can do mm. about it. Mm. Yep. Yep. Uh, Simon Shake, mm -hmm. who, who's got an amazing story. You know, he took that organisation Get Up, 
and, and when he began as director of it, it was a small backwater outfit with 100, 200,000 people. And when he left, it had uh, maybe 800,000. Now it's well over a million. Mm. And everybody knows who GetUp is. Mm. And mm. GetUp is an organisation that really gives people a sense that they are part of democracy mm. because people are so disconnected from politics. Yeah. And an amazing thing I learned from writing the book is that the political party membership in Australia is absolutely abysmal. Yeah. The combined membership of the Liberal and the uh, Labor parties is less than 100,000 people. 100,000. It's like they're in the range of 40,000, 50,000 each. Wow. Right now, GetUp has over a million people. Mm. Mm. And I think a lot of that is that, that sense of being uh, helpless. Mm. I can't affect politics, but I can be part of GetUp, and people in GetUp can start a campaign. Yeah. Any member can propose a campaign that GetUp will then, uh, other members will then pursue. Mm. So yeah. I think every person in their own way has that, that kind of story. Mm. So, so one of the quotes, and it's interesting you talked about Simon Shake there, because one of the quotes that you've got in the book is, technology is easy, but people are hard. <laughs> so what, <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit more? Oh, I know that firsthand from my, from my <laughs> IT experience, Joanne. I, I saw it so many, many times. And, and, and I really noticed this disconnect. Right? In my undergraduate degree, we did all this IT stuff, how to build a database, how to write code, mm. how to design a system, which is huge fun, right? Mm. And so you spend 99% of your time in study doing that. But when you go into a workplace, you spend 10% of your time doing that and 90% of your time working with people. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we did this one project in my degree, which I just think was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And they set up an imaginary organisation called the Department of Overseas Aid. And we had to go around interviewing people for that. And we even had a recorded interview. And there's something going on in this organisation. Mm-hmm. And ostensibly the project was to do a systems analysis of it, right? But then we went and spoke to the person in head office. And they said, well, having these people out in the branches because da-da-da. And then we spoke to the branch person. They said, oh, head office, da-da-da-da, <laughs> right? Yeah, yep. And... IT projects almost never, 99.99% of the time, don't fail because of technology. Mm. They fail because of people problems. Mm. And that is exactly the parallel we have today with the environment situation. We've got world-class, we have this amazing solar technology. We have wind, mm-hmm. we've got the pumped hydro, and all these other technologies that we can solve our problem, electric cars, right? Mm. But why are we not using them as much as we could? Why are we so slow? Why do we have a government in Australia that just thinks it's a green left socialist conspiracy? <laughs> yep. And tacitly or explicitly, they, they stand in the way of doing this. Mm. That's not a technology problem. That's a people problem. It is a people problem. And, and I think another thing that you uh, mentioned in the book that I, I really resonate with is that uh, it's... I think when people are faced with something overwhelming, we stop asking questions and we stop being curious because sometimes we're afraid of the answers. Um, 
And I just wonder with, you know, those people that, you know, you were describing as passengers or people that are feeling that they can't do anything, it seems a fairly typical response that if you're in that mindset, then you stop asking questions. What do you think the implications of that are, though? Yeah, that's huge implications, Shoanne, and it takes a real discipline to allow yourself to be wrong, to know that you can be wrong, because certainty is easy, and maybe you look at religious dogma, and I'm not anti-religion, but you could look at a dogma of any kind, not not necessarily, it could be political, mm. or it could be a technological dogma, and once you become personally attached to that, it's very hard to let go of it. And, and I am a constant struggle with myself and, and people challenge me with things that I think and I go, oh, last night I was listening to somebody on the commercial radio talking about nuclear energy, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think nuclear energy is a really bad idea. We, we don't need it yeah. and has all these problems, right? But he was saying some really interesting things about how the cost of it compares to renewable energy. He said the grid costs for renewable energy are much higher because you've got all this transmission, where if you have nuclear power stations, you can use the existing grid more and so on. That's really interesting. Now, I I have to accept that there's probably some mm-hmm. uh, logic in that. I still don't want no. <laughs> nuclear energy. Yep. And... I guess if you look at the philosophy of science, Karl Popper said, you have to explore the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis says, find ways in which you are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and you contrast that with political thinking. When was the last politician you heard stand up and say, uh, I, I could be wrong about that. Mm. Tell me that I'm wrong and I'll change my opinion. Now, that, that sounds like I'm really nailing politicians and to some extent I am but it's also the media who, who go into a feeding frenzy when when they when they find somebody backing down from their opinion so uh, I think we have to give people room to to change their opinions and and to ask mm. questions questions of look <laughs> you've got me on one of my favorite themes <laughs> Shuan. There's a a paper that really made a big difference to my thinking, and it's called Strategic Questioning. Mm. And it says the question is the most powerful thing we have. Now, the reason I like doing interviews, Mm. and it's funny being on this side. Yeah, it would be for you, yes. This side of the the interview. (laughs) But being in the questioning side is extremely powerful because that shapes the conversation. Mm. And the well-placed question really, it elicits the person's thinking and it challenges them mm. to, to, to consider their thinking. Mm. Mm. I know for myself that, the, you know, the questions you were asking me when you were interviewing me for the book, I was going, God, I haven't never thought of that. It just sort of happened. So it was quite good to actually refl- do some reflection as well because I think when you're asked a question, you can then... Uh, in order to answer it, you really do need to do a bit of both reflect, reflection and also a consideration of, of what's happening at that point in time and where you're going in the future. A question allows you to have that that pause, like, oh, I haven't Well, it forces you to articulate a thought. Yeah. And you, I think one, one of the key things, one of the most important skills, I think, is, is to be self-aware or mindful. Mm. 
because the mindfulness allows you to tap into your inner sense. So, okay, I'm thinking about nuclear energy, right? And why, and then I can ask myself the question, why am I not happy about nuclear mm. energy? Or if you ask me that question. But the other thing a, a question does is you can influence the, the person's thinking. Mm. So there was a, a federal politician not long ago, and he put out a statement, and he mentioned the words, Big Australia. Now, I'm involved with the Sustainable Population Australia, mm. okay, so I'm really concerned about population growth. Mm as a driver of the environmental damage. And so I went, I did an interview with him, right? He was very nice. And I just very gently lead it up to this question about population. And then I didn't say to him, look, I think you're wrong about population growth. Mm -hmm. I said, well, as a member of your, as a constituent of your electorate, Mm. uh, how do you feel about all the stresses on our city? with with population growth and can you see the limits and can you tell me some of the disadvantages Mm. and then now I don't know if I influenced his thinking but Mm. in a column a couple of weeks later he talked about some of those things Mm. yeah yeah so you you do know that you you can influence by using the question Um, so as we come to the end of our conversation today you started out with a with questions of all the people that you interviewed. You also started out with low reservoirs of hope. What's happened to you as a result of, of writing the book? Well, there's that's a really complex question, Shuan, because there's the personal aspect on what's happened with the book, and I, I won't bore you with it because you you get me monologuing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but seeing the book out. Uh, seeing the responses to it, the things people telling me, being on the science show recently, all that kind of thing has just been an amazing thing. But your question is about the sense of hope. Uh, when when I read bits of the book uh, or I talk to the people who are in the book uh, and, I, and I get that, I don't know, that feeling that, that I, I can't quite put words on it, but mm. this a positive sensation mm-hmm. that... And I guess you could call that hope, mm-hmm. and uh, that keeps me going. Mm. I mm. get up in the morning with the sense that there is a reason for me to go. Look, I chucked in my IT career to write this book, and now I'm just, I still don't have a job in the conventional sense, but I have a sense of purpose. Mm. And what happens to people when they leave work is that they think it's like a big holiday. I won't be at work. I'll be playing golf. I'll be fishing. I'm going out with my friends, having a drink, all that kind of stuff. But I I have a sense of purpose, Shuan, and mm. I can't tell you how much that means to me. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, I, I feel incredibly honoured to be in the book. Um, my sense is that based on the people I talk to, um, you could write another another one tomorrow about another amazing 10 people because there's so many people doing great things uh, and that's what I turn to as well when I see various news reports or like the ice and and those sorts of issues that that continue to happen and will continue to happen because it's going to be cumulative but for me I do as you have done look to other people because they provide me with those um, sort of as I said earlier reservoirs of hope that I can draw on when my own get a bit lower. Um, 
I, I really do feel that that by focusing on the people in the book, it will connect so much more with others. And I encourage our listeners to grab a copy and have a listen. Uh, and I hope that whatever you're doing today, you have had a bit more of hope about where we're going and what we're doing. So Rod, thanks very much for talking to us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Sharon. Great. And listeners, I'll go for now and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.